and and we're going through you know a, a transformative moment at the moment um you know a big crisis what what sort of advice would you give based on your research to leaders um, looking to emerge from from the current crisis <laughs> i don't know actually um i don't know i mean is this a transforming experience for people? I suppose in a way it is, but for everyone. I'm talking about something much more micro rather than something macro. I'm talking about actually a, a relatively small group of people. I, I, haven't, I have no clue, Stephen, at all <laughs> how, to, how to use this to your advantage, except, of course, the very obvious point that it does make um, internet-based businesses even more attractive. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, unless you happen to be a virologist or someone else uh, that has unique knowledge. You know, I mean, the, ex the extraordinary thing about the current crisis is, is, is that actually nobody knows what's caused it. Nobody knows how to deal with it. No one knows whether lockdowns are a good idea or a bad idea at micro level. You know, there's no, there's no evidence that is incontrovertible. We will not know for several years. Um, what is the best way of dealing with this? So I don't. I, I, I think I've said all I can on that. But let me just go through the other the other um, things which were very important, and you can pick me up and ask me about any of them. The, f the first one is self belief, um, which is quite amazing. But you know, all of these people had the most um, incredible and, in many ways, irrational belief in the, in their own abilities. Um, so, you know, again, the thing that I'm interested in is, well, if you don't have self-belief, how do you get it? And I sort of discuss that in the book. The, the second one is Olympian expectations, which is the idea that you think big and you basically have very high standards that you impose on yourself and on anybody else that you um, collaborate with or who work for you. The third one is transforming experience. The fourth one's quite interesting because this, in a way, is the, is the most important one. But I put it fourth in the book for particular reasons, which is one breakthrough achievement. If you look at all these people who were very successful, Marie Curie, for example, you know, an amazing woman, you know, she, she um, had all the disadvantages of coming, you know, living in Poland under the czars when, when uh, women were not allowed to go to university, uh, when in fact um, there was quite strong oppression of Polish people on nationalist grounds. And she managed to get to the Sorbonne after working as a governess for three years, saving up money. Um, and she managed to eventually get into the magic circle of French physics and chemistry by really by marrying. I'm not suggesting that she did this um, for any other reason that she fell in love with uh, Pierre Curie, but, but you know, without that, that was her transforming experience. But her breakthrough achievement was discovering radium. And, you know, if she'd chosen to study something else, uh, we'd probably never have heard of her. But it's, it's very interesting that, that nearly all of these people, actually, actually, I think all of them, you can say they had one breakthrough achievement and that is fantastic because it means you don't need to do very much. You just need to do one thing in your life that actually makes a huge difference. The next one is not ter terribly original. Make your own trail. Well, except that you do need to have a unique philosophy and a unique um, 
thing that you that you actually do and you don't just make a breakthrough achievement without having your own trail to start with the sixth one is find and drive your own personal vehicle and this is the idea that you know none of us actually unless we are a brilliant academic or musician or artist certainly not not in business and even perhaps not even in any of those fields either can you do it on your own so you need a vehicle which for a business person is nearly always a company but without a vehicle which doesn't have to be a company at all it can be a social movement or it can be just a climate of opinion that you create like uh, uh, was actually created by the man who went to the concentration camps uh, and you know Viktor Frankl formed a whole movement which was the third wave of psychology after Freud and Adler and uh, without those followers probably we wouldn't have heard of him anyway um, so your personal vehicle is very important the next one is, that, is, is to thrive on setbacks because all of these people in my book had major setbacks and most people would have given up um, and I suppose the king of setbacks was uh, Churchill who you know was a very prominent person back in 1914 <laughs> became Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1925 took, took Britain off the gold standard uh, or, or rather rejoined effectively the gold standard uh, was terribly unsuccessful was viewed as a um, washed up drunk by his colleagues in the 1930s um, and just always believed that sooner or later his time would come and he was the only person who really spotted that that Hitler was an existential threat to the world and that he knew how to deal with that. Um, so, you know, he had all those setbacks and then suddenly in May 1940, he was the only person uh, to try and, and deal with Hitler. Um, but, but, you know, setbacks are absolutely essential because they give you feedback, they tell you when you're either trying to do the wrong thing or trying to do it in the, in the wrong way. And in a way, a glorious setback is for the right person, for the you know, person who has the attitude, it sort of makes them quite important. You know, if there's one thing which is almost as good or perhaps better than spectacular success, it's spectacular failure. <laughs> People notice that. And in a way, you become quite famous. Uh, and it's astonishing how often a spectacular failure, as appeared to be the case with the Faulkners and Mrs Thatcher, you know, can suddenly turn out to be the complete opposite. And then the eighth of my nine ways is called acquire unique intuition. All of these people in my book were highly intuitive, even someone like... Um, Albert Einstein, you know, he wasn't someone engaged in the grubby business of research. He did everything from first principles and suddenly made the connection between um, time and the micro world with the theory of relativity, which, which had eluded him. I mean, he was a young man, new to the field. He read everything about uh, the new physics and um, he absolutely 
thought about it uh, to, to a tremendous degree, but it was just this leap of, of logic. Similarly with Marie Curie, you know, nobody thought that, that actually uh, there was a new uh, chemical property which could explain radio radioactivity, which is a word that she invented. It was always assumed that uh, basically things either either were or were not radioactive. And, you know, she said, well, actually, if things are very radioactive, there's probably um, a chemical property which is causing that. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know how she managed to get that because that had failed, you know, that had eluded, that insight had eluded all the other people who were much more um, grounded in, in physics and chemistry than she was. Um, and again, it was an insight from a relatively young person who was very brilliant, but had, had a, a unique intuition. And then the last of these, which in a way is the one that I like best, is distort reality. And this is the Steve Jobs territory <laughs> where, where you can actually change the world if you believe that you can change it. And obviously there are limits to that. But uh, believing that you can distort reality is, um, is very, very powerful. And he managed to get teams of people to do things that nobody thought was possible uh, initially with the Mac, which was an idea which incidentally he stole from, I said you stole in a very loose sense, from the Xerox Corporation who set up a lab of boffins in California. And he happened to go along one day uh, because he had an entree to it, and saw that they had developed what effectively is a modern computer, where you know you you can do things without loads and loads of code, you can click on icons, you can do smooth scrolling and all that sort of stuff. Well, Xerox had done it, and then he realised that actually they hadn't done it well enough, and it needed to be a lot cheaper and it needed to be a lot better. But but basically that was that idea, and then. When he actually went back to having been fired by Apple in 1986 and went back in 1997 uh, because they were about to go bankrupt, um, he then decided that he would wait for the new next best thing. You know, and that turned out to be iTunes and the iPod and the iPad and, and all those other things and then the iPhone. But, you know, nobody would would actually have invented those things if they hadn't had the experience of saying you could actually go from a very, very user-unfriendly computer where you had to be a professional and you had to know all about code. Uh, but actually, maybe a 10-year-old kid could actually uh, use a computer to generate something which is just as good or better than that. Likewise, you know, maybe a three-year-old kid on a plane can use an iPad, uh, you know, if you can make it simple enough and obvious enough, intuitive enough to, to actually do that. Well, you know, he'd had that. He'd had that Sorry to interrupt, uh, Richard. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Zoom. It's, um, it's giving me a timer and um, I'm running out of time. Okay, sorry. Um, I'll, I'll stop my like stop start. my monologue, Stephen. You go ahead and ask any questions. <laughs> Sorry, would you like to um, me to send you another link and, and we can just resume for um, the, the the end of the call? Yeah, sure, that's um, fine. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask: um, Could you tell me any of your sort of transformative experiences um, on your sort of career journey? 
Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, there were two transforming experiences for me. One was working at Bone and Company uh, as a strategy consultant. And I had been, bear in mind, as I think I said earlier, I had been a total failure at Bain and Company, uh, BCG, Boston Consulting Group. I learned a lot and I believed in the concepts very, very strongly, but I wasn't a very good analyst. I wasn't very good at data collection. And I certainly wasn't very good at computer analysis of uh, the data. And that was the thing that was most valuable for, um, for the Boston Consulting Group until you suddenly made the leap to become a vice president or a partner of the, the firm. And then it was your ability to work out what was important and to think about the concepts and, and, to, and to sell really to the chief executives of companies. Um, so anyway, I was a complete failure, um, but somehow I managed to talk myself into a job with um, Bain and Company. I managed to um, persuade them that um, maybe I had been quite successful in BCG, and I was interested in transfer transferring from BCG to Bain and Company at a time that they were finding it quite difficult to recruit experienced strategy consultants they could they could take people for, who had been MBAs from Harvard or Stanford or Warden um, and indeed they could take more junior people who'd been uh, undergraduates but um, they, they found it quite hard to get people who really um, knew a lot about the, the subject and so I arrived after someone who'd been four years in BCG and I managed to get an interview with Bill Bain, and I was very, very lucky because he was <laughs> he was a historian, and I had been an undergraduate historian, so we ended up talking merrily about history. Uh, and um, anyway, he he decided to hire me, and within a couple of years, he decided to make me a partner of the company, which again was bizarre um, and very lucky. Um, and Bain and Company was very interesting for me. Bain, Bain was a completely different company, the sort of company that I would hate working for, I thought, because I, I used the word Stalinist. It was very tightly controlled by Bill and through him. There, he had five henchmen who were all remarkable people, including Mitt Romney. Um, and um, they were people who were you know, very, very successful, but they did what Mr. Big, everyone called Bill Mr. Big, uh, wanted. And he controlled the company with, you know, the iron fist in the velvet glove. He was a very gracious and, and actually um, amusing person when he was talking to you, but you jolly well better do exactly what he wanted. And that was that was the model that Bain and Company had, and they they, they produced that model, they used that model, I better be very careful what I say here, um, within their um, consulting practice. So they believed in a top-down approach and Bain and Company, the partner in charge of the, of the relationship and the client chief executive would then work out what they thought was the right thing based on you know exhaustive and very, very good analysis and investigation. Um, but having decided what should be done, they would leave nothing to chance. 
and they would ensure that, that the, the, the new strategy was, um, I was going to say imposed, and that's a bit unfair, it, it was um, cascaded down within the organisation in a very uh, controlled and reliable and effective way. And it, it was, I've never seen work like that in a consulting firm either before or after, including my own. Um, so anyway, um, why did it transform me? It transformed me because I had never, I had never seen that approach before. They, they used exactly the same intellectual capital that BCG had developed, uh, not accidentally at all, because Bill Bain had been involved in developing that intellectual capital within the Boston Consulting Group, but they used it in a completely different way. BCG was a very freewheeling, sort of laissez-faire, market-based thing. Bruce Henderson, the founder, was a believer in market forces to the most extraordinary degree, to the extent to which he basically precipitated the breakup of his own company by putting Bill Bain in charge of one of the three parts of the company. His theory was that if you divided BCG into three separate profit centres and allowed the people to develop their own approach, one of those would become much more profitable and effective and then that would provide a model for the rest of the organization well he was half right because bill bain's third of the company ended up you know being hugely successful with a different approach to the use of the intellectual capital but the process of consulting uh instead of you know what bcg did which was they did what every other consulting firm in the world did which was to do projects and they would work for the head of you know this division or that division, this country or that country, this function or that function. Um, Bill Bain worked out that you could be much more effective as a consultant if you only worked for the, the top dog in the whole organization, uh, because that person had got the leverage, the power, and the um, ability to say what should happen within the organization. Um, so his idea was, well, you know, you only work for the top person. And he also developed this theory that, that the relationship between the consulting firm and the client should be an exclusive relationship both ways. As he said, you know, we won't work for your competitors and, and, and you won't work with our competitors. So, you know, if you, if you employed Bain & Company, there was no opening for McKinsey or the Boston Consulting Group to come into that because effectively Bain was given a monopoly of consulting work within the client organisation. The converse of that was that they would not work for competitors and, and previously it had been very common for McKinsey and BCG and any other leading consulting firm to work for BP one day and Shell the next day and uh, Conoco the, the day, you know, the day after on different projects, you know, they, they, they wouldn't obviously um, use any confidential information or insight which was generated, but they were quite happy with, you know, move, sliding between people who were basically in the same competitive system or competitors. Uh, whereas, you know, Bill Bain said, no, you, you, that's not the way to do it. And he proved his point because Bain and Company, you know, kept a chart of the stock market performance of their clients and they did make a huge difference.
at least in the early days, uh, to work with those companies. And they did produce fantastic results for nearly all of their clients by having this very um, unitary approach. And why was that important for me? Well, it was important for me for a couple of reasons. One was I'd never been successful in strategy consulting before. I really believed in the ideas. But within Bain & Company, I was very successful. Um, and how did I do that? Because I towed the party line. And I sort of, you know, basically in BCG, I was always a little bit of a rebel in what was really quite a rebellious organisation. And then, you know, within a Stalinist organisation, I became <laughs> a very good follower of Stalin. Uh, so so um, that was... That was very interesting to me because it said that you know I was a little bit plastic. I was I was able to develop a, a different approach, and I was able to sell a lot of work. And so I got the confidence, just as Bill Bain had got the confidence, that I could be a co-founder of a strategy consulting firm and be very successful at doing that. And that's what we did in Atticave. For the first six years that we operated, we doubled our size in terms of number of consultants, roughly anyway. We doubled our size in terms of our, our sales, our revenues, and we doubled our profits, and we doubled the number of people working in the firm. Um, so, you know, we were fantastically successful, and, you know, there's nothing like believing that you've <laughs> got some magic formula uh, to, um, to give you that confidence. We developed different ideas, and we worked, ended up doing a lot of work, which no one else had ever done, in the acquisitions area. Um, in other words, we were strategy consultants, we weren't investment bankers, but we would work out how to identify good acquisition targets and then how to find out everything that you possibly want to know about those targets. So that in a way, uh, you knew the potential of the firm that you were targeting better than the people who were running the firm. Well, you, that was a theory anyway, and I think it was very largely true. Um, so, to answer you, a very long answer to a very short question, I'll just finish now. Uh, my two transforming experiences were first Bain and & Company and then doing it myself along with two other colleagues in LEK. And that just gave me, as a raw 30-year-old, you know, an enormous uh, confidence. And in terms of uh, major setbacks, is there any sort of major setbacks that you look back and you think... Yeah, wow, that I really learn a lot from that. Being fired by Bain & Company, by BCG, was probably my my major setback. Actually, there was another one, Stephen, which which was after I had left LEK and decided that you know really I didn't want to work sixty hours a week anymore. Um, I drifted a bit. Um, and, you know, I wasn't sure what I should be doing. And I thought, well, I understand this 80-20 principle and the rest of it, so I'll be lazy. Uh, and that was great, except that, you know, I, I then lost all the gratification that you get from um, actually achieving results and stretching yourself. And I, yeah, basically, I then had to focus. And at that stage, I decided, well, I, I might as well become an investor. Uh, and that was very useful because I, I, have, I have been a very successful investor. Uh, so 
um, yeah, it was that was I suppose that the, the, the second setback was just drifting when in my early forties. But the first one, which was totally traumatic, <laughs> a really very unpleasant experience, was failing in BCG and then um, having to get a job, another job, and then having to totally change my view of, of life, which would, uh, up to then had been very sort of you know libertarian and freewheeling, um, and become a good corporate um, apparatchik. Perfect. Well. Thank you so much for your time. It's uh, a pleasure. I'm sorry I've been <laughs> rabbiting on and on and on. Um, no, that's correct. If there are any questions yeah. that you've got, do, do do email me. Or if you haven't got my email address, I can give it to you or you can send it to Ricardo and he'll pass it on to me. But have you got a copy of the book, Stephen? Well, I've been waiting um, for it to come through the post. Um, I think, I don't know if there was some some issue but um i have received a pdf but um i'm still waiting on the book um, okay all right i'll try and i'll day. try and expedite that to you i mean this is this that's um that's very unfortunate in fact i've only had my copy of the book for five days but but it does it does look wonderful and it's a lot easier to ask the questions if you've got the book uh so anyway um yeah. Forward to reading it. So, um, okay, so, great. Yeah, All right, very right. nice talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Pleasure. Man. Have a nice evening. Thanks. Uh, enjoy the rest of the evening in Portugal. Thank you. I will. <laughs> Bye now. <laughs>